Good morning. Hello. We are in the middle of the book of Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 4. And the title of the sermon this morning is Anger Issues. Anger Issues. We're in Ephesians 4. We're going to look at verses 26 and 27. But we're going to read, uh, starting a couple verses before that for the context. And I'll be reading and teaching primarily from the New American Standard Bible today. So Ephesians chapter 4, let's start in verse uh, 24. The Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. And here's our passage for today, verse 26. Paul continues, he says, Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. Church, this is a, the, the Word of God. Let's pray and submit our hearts and our minds to the Lord as we open His Word today. Father, we come to You this morning to exalt You and worship You and receive from You. Pray, Father, that You would bless and anoint the preaching and teaching of your word today, that your Holy Spirit would lead and direct and convict and mature us as we take your word in. God, help it to affect the change that you have for us today, that we would leave this place with our eyes on Jesus and our hearts modeled after his. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we looked at verse 25, and we saw that truthfulness is a characteristic of everyone who has received the love of God in Jesus and who walks in or who adorns their identity in Christ. And we've been considering this radical truth that the Apostle Paul puts out in, in all of his epistles. It's described here in Ephesians, and we've been camping on that, this idea of a new identity. But I love how explicitly he lays it out in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Look at verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And then in verse 21, he says that he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Jesus. That is the Apostle Paul putting a fine point on our identity in Christ. We are made new creations in Jesus. We've been given a new nature. We've been separated from who we once were. We've been set free from how we once walked, and we've been given a new path to walk in. Paul has been saying, put on this new identity. Walk in who you now are in Christ. And last week, Paul identified the first way that this new identity changes us. This, one of the ways that this new identity marks us and Paul explains that we handle the truth differently, that we no longer lie or misrepresent the truth. That's how we used to live, but we no longer have need for lying. We no longer have need for misrepresenting the truth. We no longer need to protect ourselves with a lie, or we no longer need to impress others with building ourselves up or mishandling what may or may not be true. Why do we no longer need this? Because the love of God has saved us, forgiven us, and has changed us. And we now speak the truth in love for the benefit of others. And today we look at the second way that our new identity in Jesus changes us. In our passage today, it says, not only do we handle the truth differently, but we handle our emotions differently. 
As we adorn Jesus and as we walk in this new identity, we don't just have new actions, we also have new emotions. And I think topping the list of most needed new emotions is anger. Uh, Anger is swift, it's brutal, it's destructive, often sloppy, harming both the angry and the innocent. Plato said that there are two things that a person should never be angry at, what they can help and what they cannot. Benjamin Franklin, he says that anger is never without reason, but seldom with a good one. Today we're going to look at right anger, and we're going to find our, some hope, I believe. I think we're going to find hope and strength in our struggles with wrong anger as well. We've all experienced and probably come to understand anger's powerful influence. Many of us know the hurt and divisiveness, the the joylessness, the devastation of anger. Either we have a history of mishandling anger, or we know someone who's controlled by it. And today we see and find hope that the gospel has real power over anger, even our anger. And so first Paul draws a distinction between righteous anger and sinful anger. And he draws this distinction by quoting directly from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4. And he says quite simply, be angry but don't sin. What he's saying is that there's a right way to be angry. And we see first and foremost in Scripture that righteous anger is always and only directed at sin. It's always and only directed at what is evil. And we get this. We hate unfairness. We hate injustice. So this makes sense to us. But what's wrong with our, our righteous anger much of the time is that our obsession with justice or fairness or even our cultural obsession with justice, fairness, and equality, it can totally steamroll people who oppose the way we think about it. And so even in our righteous anger, we, we mishandle what is right and true. And so the second characteristic of right anger or righteous anger, is that righteous anger is a controlled anger. It's not only right, righteous anger is also rightly controlled. Righteous anger always treats people with love and is self-controlled. Galatians chapter 5 verse 19, Paul says, the deeds of the flesh are evident, and he lists this list of the deeds of the flesh, right? When we operate outside of the Holy Spirit and right near the top of that list, is outbursts of anger. Now, it's impossible for us to calibrate an appropriate righteous anger without knowing what righteous anger really is. We even get righteous anger wrong. And so at what point does righteous anger become sin? By whose standard do we measure appropriateness? What's the standard of measure for righteous anger? It's important for us to know the standard of measure in every area of life. I remember one time reading about the great Swedish warship. Uh, It was called Vasa. And Vasa means snarl or hiss. But Vasa was so big that for a a season in Swedish history that any great warship was referred to as like as Vasa, right? Like because this ship was so intimidating. But an interesting fact about Vasa, well, first of all, it was armed with 64 bronze cannons, which was, it made it by far the most fierce uh, warship in history. It was launched in 1628, and crowds from all over Sweden traveled hundreds of miles even to come to watch the christening and launch of the massive vessel. It was the pride of Sweden, and it was the pride of all of her European allies. It was much needed at this time in history. Well, they watched in horror on that day as the ship 
sank less than a mile into her, ma in, into her maiden voyage, listing to the port and then finally rolling over, killing 30 of her crew on her maiden voyage. They, they watched from shore. It was so close. The heavy ship was launched and immediately rolled over. It was raised from the bottom in 18, or excuse me, in 1961, and ex experts determined that the ship was built disproportionately that they had used different units of measure, different standards of measure on one side versus the other as the two crews worked. And archaeologists have found evidence in that history in Sweden that there were, in fact, two different units of measure that were common at the time. Kind of, it's ridiculous to think about that, that a ship would be built in such a sloppy way. But you fast forward several hundred years to our culture, and we're kind of saddled with two units of measure, aren't we? Right? You, you go to buy milk, and you buy a gallon of milk. You go to buy soda, and you buy a two-liter bottle of soda. Like, what the heck? You know, your ruler has, has centimeters and millimeters on one side, and inches and quarter inches and sixteenths of an inch. Is on the, it's like, why are we still saddled with this archaic unit of measure? Well, the reason is because Thomas Jefferson picked that imperial measuring system at the birth of the country. The man that created the first decimal-only currency... He's absolutely committed to tenths and tenths and hundreds and thousandths, allowed this ridiculous archaic unit of measure. And he said the reason he chose the imperial system, this is a rabbit trail, but it's fun. The reason that he chose the imperial system was that the metric system was too French. <laughs> That's ridiculous. It's confusing. It's arbitrary. But listen, if, if we don't have a right standard of measure, and as a kingdom family, if we don't have the right standard of measure together, it's not just a boat that's flipping in the ocean. The, the, the vessel of our lives, as we allow anger in in different proportions, the ship goes down. We sink. This is how the world calibrates its morality apart from God. The world uses arbitrary, irrational standards. The world says, you do you and I'll do me. And by that standard, our culture uses a million different systems to measure morality. And this has led to a radical individualism. And radical individualism divides people, separates people, separates people from one another and separates people from God as we each cling to our own system of measuring morality. Each one of us gets to decide what's right for ourselves. We independently work to stay just clear enough for, from one another to allow them to do what's right for them. And individualism always ends up hurting and offending and abusing and even assaulting others in our attempt to remain independent and to remain free. Thankfully, God's standard is not confusing, nor is it arbitrary. It's not like our measuring systems. God is good. God is love, and so are his standards. And so, what is righteous anger? Well, God is love, and so his anger, his righteous anger, comes from love. Think about that for a second. In relation to my anger, it, it sounds funny to me, to me that God's anger comes from a place of love. But we know it's true because even at creation, God in his holy, just love created good things and he created good things with good purposes. And so what angers God is the perversion of his goodness. When the things he made right turn wrong. This is what sin is. Sin is a perversion of what God made right. 
Sin is a rebellion against God. And when we aim for a goal that is not God's goal, we sin. We, we deviate from God's good plan. And sin warps and distorts God's glory. It tears apart what is good and valuable. It separates crea- the creation from the Creator. It perverts and mars what was made good. And because God is good in love, His nature demands righteous anger over sin. God's nature demands righteous anger over the effects of sin and the evil upon His good creation. And so our righteous anger comes in the face of sin and evil that defiles goodness and tramples the love of God. That is our standard. And the anger that, that might come in the face of sin, it's not simply an infuriated emotion like we often experience in our anger. There's also an element of grieving. Uh, remember, Jesus went into the temple And in his anger, he threw over money changers' tables. I'm sure you've heard that story. But that act was motivated by a deep grief. If you look in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, Jesus expresses and shares his grieved spirit that led him, forced him to respond. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's he's pleading and and crying. He's mourning. That's that's the, the tenor of this start to this verse. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. Jesus is mourning the brokenness of relationship that he had created and ordained from the very beginning. And so anger without anguish is evidence of a lack of God's love in us. Righteous anger is birthed and governed by love. Therefore, righteous anger is slow to be expressed. God's love is evident by His grace, and God's anger is preceded by His grace. And so our righteous anger must exhaust redemptive, loving avenues of grace. Because God's goodness and God's love are the standard for our righteous anger, we must always desire mercy to triumph over judgment. James chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when He judges you. It's good for us to remember that Jesus first came carrying a cross before returning with a sword in His hand. It's good for us to meditate on Jesus and his mercy. It's good for us to calibrate our anger on Jesus and his righteousness. Now, we may never perfect our anger, our righteous anger in this lifetime, but Paul is challenging us to grow in the grace of pursuing it as we pursue Jesus, as we adorn Jesus, as we walk in this new identity. Paul is saying, pursue righteous anger. Pursue righteousness. He's saying, be angry, yet don't sin. So what does wrong anger look like? Uh, Remember the context of Ephesians. We're in Christ. Jesus is in us in this sense. In Ephesians chapter 3, as Paul is praying for the church in Ephesus, he puts it this way. He's praying that, in verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts, right? That Christ may, uh, in other translations, it says, make his home in your heart. But that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
and that you being rooted and grounded in love. And then he continues to pray into their identity. See, our righteous anger is motivated by love, by the presence of God within us. And our anger is something entirely different than it once was. So there are three signs of wrong anger or sinful anger. The first is that wrong anger takes over. The second is that wrong anger overstays its welcome. And the third is that wrong anger brings unwanted guests. Now we're going to talk about each of these for just a moment. But um, bad anger is a lot like Cousin Eddie from the movie uh, Christmas Vacation. If you've ever seen that movie, right? It's right at Christmas time. And, uh, you know, the Griswolds live in this nice suburban uh, community, and they've got their Christmas decorations going on. And it's uh, very beautiful. It's snowy. And, and Cousin Eddie rolls up in this crummy old motorhome, unannounced, uninvited, and he just rolls up, right? And, and there's this sense of obligation. The family's like, oh my gosh. And then the family starts coming out, and they've got this massive dog named Snot, because that's what the dog is and does. And these kids and this, just their whole scenario. It's like this uninvited, unwelcome thing that the family was obligated to entertain. Now, I bring that up because it's such, a, it's such a good analogy for the way we entertain anger. When anger shows up at the door, we're not always going, man, I sure hope anger shows up today because it's awesome when I'm angry. No, anger just rolls up and we have this sense of obligation because we feel kind of justified in our anger. We've, we have, there's just enough truth in it for us to be like, you know what, I'm going to sit on this for a while because, because it makes me feel right right now. And so we entertain anger. But what happens, first of all, is that anger takes over. Wrong anger is invasive. It invades with wrong, motor, with wrong motives. It's usually marked by pride. It's a selfish anger. It flares in response to a personal offense rather than an offense against God. And it's directed at people. Our unrighteous anger is directed at people, whereas righteous anger, anger is only always directed at sin. And so holding on to anger can give us a feeling of control, right? When, when a relationship goes sideways and we're angry, we, we get this sense of control in our anger. Even if we can't control a situation or a relationship, we can be duped into thinking that our anger gives us a measure of control. Because we know that anger makes us miserable. We're all miserable in our anger. But sometimes we choose this misery because at least we feel like it's a predictable thing. And we have a say in it. Right? Well, I'd rather be angry because I, I kind of I feel safe in that place. Even though it's a crummy place, I'm, I'm aware of it and it's familiar. And I can kind of hide out in it and I, and I feel like I'm protecting myself. Whereas I have to be vulnerable if I'm going to choose forgiveness. If I want to talk through this and actually get to the other side, I have to put myself out there. And there's, there's risk involved in that. And so as often we'll choose anger even though it's miserable. Psalm chapter 4. Remember, Psalm chapter 4, verse 4 is the verse that the Apostle Paul is directly quoting in our passage today. Well, Psalm chapter 4, we find King David, and he's out of Israel, been banished out of Israel, and all of his, his faithful men are out with him and not allowed back in. They're actually being pursued. There had been a coup, and his son Absalom had kicked out his own father. And so Absalom's wrongdoing is tempting David and his people to sin in their anger. Now, just imagine the stewing and that they were going, oh boy, what I'm, I'm going to do to that guy, right? Just, I can't believe he did that. What, I, what we're going to do, oh my gosh. Imagine the rehearsing of revenge that must have been going on in the hearts 
and minds of these men. And then David remembers. The Holy Spirit just falls upon David. I, I have to believe in this moment because there's no other way you would change your heart on your own. And he remembers where his true hope comes from. And then he exhorts his men. And that's what we see in Psalm chapter 4. Verse 3, he says, Man, you can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. So the Lord will answer when I call to him. And then he says, Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. That word silent is a word that's translated also stillness. Be still before God. What he's saying is, listen, we're separated from our kingdom already. Let's not separate ourselves from God also by choosing anger over God. Because wrong anger would always, as it does, puts us in control. It puts our trust in anger rather than trusting the Lord. Sinful anger directs people to act in place of God. See, if Jesus is with us, why on earth would we want to act outside of his presence? We were created to trust in the Lord. We were created for the Lord to vindicate us, to actually be our vindication. The Lord is our vindication. And so how would our relationships, our our marriages, our intimate, closest, personal relationships, how would they change if we trusted the Lord rather than in our anger when there's an offense? James chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Everyone must be quick to hear, speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Man, that's a, that's a zinger for me to read that verse. Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Because wrong anger puts itself before God, and wrong anger leads us away from growing in Jesus. And we also know that anger is a, a handy tool of the devil, our enemy. He can du- if he can dupe us into anger, then he's already won. If we choose anger over God, then, then the devil has already run, won the victory. James chapter 4, verse 7. James gives us this, this tool, this right mindset in battling the enemy and the enemy's influence in our life. He says, verse 7, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And so today, we, when we read that passage, we receive this. We say, we have to resist anger. Anger is something we have to resist against. We have to hold it back and call it out and say, no, not today. Today is not going to be a day that's marked by anger. You are not welcome. Anger, you are not welcome in this relationship. Anger, you're not welcome in this household. You're not welcome in this marriage. You're not welcome in this family. Anger, you're not welcome in this business. You're not welcome in this living room. We have to call it out. Call it, identify it for what it is in our hearts. Call it out and resist it as a work of the enemy in our life. Let Jesus evict your anger. We see this incredible promise in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus says that, he goes, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus has overcome even your anger. He is able. Put your mind and your heart, put the, your, your eyes and the trajectory of your life upon Jesus. Call out anger. Evict it. And the second sign of wrong anger, number two, is that wrong anger overstays its welcome. It doesn't just take over, it moves in. 
And Paul, this is the New Living Translation in our passage today, he says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. We're to serve anger in eviction notice, he's saying. Before the sun goes down, that means ASAP. He's like, don't even go to sleep. Take care of the anger issue. Whatever's going on, deal with it. Deal with it quickly. Why? Because verse 27, it says, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. Now, many of you, especially if you're in youth, you know I love Zion National Park. Uh, There's a million reasons why I love going there. I love taking people that have never been there. One of the more interesting features of the park that you don't really see when you're, when you're in there unless you're really looking are these little teeny footholds that have been carved into the 1,300-foot sheer cliffs that go all the way to the top. What happened when Mormons settled that area a, a while ago, uh, they had trouble farming in the canyon because the flash floods just wipe everything out. And so their homes and, and families would just get obliterated during a flash flood. Well, archaeologists have discovered that native peoples were very successfully farming that canyon for centuries because they didn't live in the canyon. They would temporarily stay down there while they're farming, but during the rainy seasons, they would live up on the rim of the canyon, and they would use these little footholds to access their farms and cultivate the land and harvest and bring everything up in baskets to their homes. It's just this little teeny polka dot line that is so faint that you can't even see it halfway up, but it goes the whole way. The native peoples had established just enough of a foothold to be able to use that canyon for their benefit. And it was a beautiful, life-giving, culture-enhancing gift from God that they would establish a foothold to access the fertile ground of the canyon. Well, the enemy does the same thing, but in a very bad way. When we allow anger a place in our heart, the enemy establishes the same kind of foothold, and sometimes it's discreet. And he can climb down and access our heart. If we're not thorough in our eviction of anger, the enemy has access to our heart. The Apostle Paul is warning that our angry heart gives the devil permission to establish footholds. And this word here for footholds is the Greek word tapas. And it literally means a geographic location, a place. And it's also used metaphorically in the New Testament to mean an opportunity for action. So it's like giving someone a seat at a table where decisions are made. He's got a seat. He's got a voice in the conversation. Our anger invites the devil to sit at the table of our heart and help us decide about our life. Our anger can create a place for the devil to be at work within us. Even small, discreet places, like the faint polka dots that run down the canyon wall. And the third sign of wrong anger Number three is that wrong anger brings unwanted guests. Anger never travels alone. It always brings guests. Anger wants to squat on our spiritual, emotional, and physical health. And rather than release anger, often we like to rehearse our anger, right? We like to stew in our anger. But when we rehearse anger, the wrong and the wrongs that have been done to us, our heart gives room for it to remain. We actually create a place in our heart where, it's okay, where anger is okay. If it's not experiencing opposition and an eviction notice, the steady eviction of anger, then it's just given a little corner. And we tolerate it. And we listen to it. And when anger is given a place to stay, it brings unwanted guests. When we're angry, we're susceptible to invasion from unwanted guests. Like Proverbs says in Proverbs 25, verse 28, he says, a person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. Like an ancient city whose walls broken down were susceptible to invasion. 
Things that we don't want, that are not invited, just, just walk on into our heart. It's like anger just creates a hole in, in the barrier around our hearts. And some of anger's unwanted guests, and this is, uh, some of this is from uh, Jerry Bridges' book on anger, the title of which I should have written down here, but so good. Uh, first of all, bitterness takes root in the angry heart. Nobody says, I want to be bitter. But when we hold on to anger, bitter, bitterness is an inevitable guest that joins the party. Another guest that joins is negativity and criticism. A person with a critical spirit. When you look at a situation and it's like well, half empty, it's always the negative. Well, they could have done better. Well, this guy did better than you did, right? The, the negative, the critical spirit. You can't see anything positive. Another, another one that follows anger into our heart is discouragement. We're discouraged. We're always living a discouraged life. The next would be discontentment. We're not appreciative or thankful for what we have. The next is we become indifferent in our anger, like ah, apathetic even. And then we become unlovely. We, we become hard to love, and we become unloving, unwilling to give ourselves to others in relationship. And finally, at the end, the last guest to arrive at the party is despair. And when despair sets in, despair is evidence that we've been led away from our identity in Jesus. Because Jesus is our hope, and he brings peace. Despair is hopelessness and is constant conflict with the truth. Our anger and our holding on to anger sometimes seems to give us a sense of control. But anger is more damaging to the angry person than to anyone else. Mark Twain put it this way. It's awesome. I love this. He says, anger is an acid that does more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything upon which it is poured. Just like that mighty warship Vasa, that Swedish warship, if we don't calibrate our anger, it could sink our ship. So how do we resist anger? How do we oppose this work of the enemy in our heart? Well, an unmistakable work of the gospel in our life is forgiveness. We, we have been given forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that has been extended freely to us. And we are now able to forgive as Jesus has forgiven us. So Paul says to act swiftly. He's like, get it out of you. Get rid of it. Well, how do we evict anger? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, this is a little bit of a spoiler alert. We'll be here in just a couple of weeks. Paul says, be kind to one another. It's kindness. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Paul is saying, again, as you walk in your new identity, where are our eyes? On Jesus. Where is our mind? On Jesus. His kindness. His tenderness. His forgiveness. That's what washes over us when our eyes are on Jesus. Walk in His kindness. Walk in his tenderness. Walk in his forgiveness as we walk like Jesus. Paul is saying, get your eyes off of your drama. Get your eyes off of your offense. Get your eyes even off of your hurt and put your eyes on Jesus. Then you can calibrate your anger properly. You can calibrate your emotions properly. Jesus is the calibrator. He's the standard for us. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. If you had a cancer and you were at the doctor, and the doctor's like, this is serious, but listen, in four hours, I could have that out of your body and you'd be in recovery, right? We'd be like, yes, let's do that right now. 
right? Every one of us. It'd be like, it's a no-brainer, of course. If you can successfully operate and you've got, and you've got a good understanding of it, let's do this. Let's get this thing out. See, anger is like the same thing. It's an emotional cancer. It grows, and it has tentacles, and it brings ruin and destruction to every part of our life and every relationship. The small little anger that we have over politics and infects and infiltrates into our marriage and the way we raise our kids. An angry heart is angry everywhere. A self-preserving heart becomes self-preserving everywhere. And Paul is saying get rid of all of the anger. Even the justifiable anger. If it's not righteous anger, it's invasive. It's an emotional cancer. The good news today is that Jesus can and will remove your anger and the rest of our sin. If we acknowledge and confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen? And so turn from anger, Paul is saying. Receive the truth. And so we're going to end here. We're going to read Philippians chapter 4. As we prepare our hearts and we prepare our minds for worship, what are we setting ourselves upon? If we're going to push something out, we need to fill it with something else. Philippians 4, verse 8. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and anything worthy of praise, he says, dwell on these things. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. Practice them. Walk in them, as he's been saying. And the God of peace will be with you. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you, God, that you bring peace. Lord, this morning, many of us have anger issues, and some of us are walking in active anger issues, and it flares up multiple times a day. Others have been sitting with an old anger issue, and it's well-established and has even formed a part of our identity and created walls. God, this morning we pray for your Holy Spirit to bring conviction, as Jesus promised the Spirit would, that you would identify the sin, the ways that we've rebelled against what is good and right and perfect, that you would convict us of our sins, the way that we've turned from you and have turned to anger. Pray, God, that you'd lead us in repentance to turn away from anger today, to evict it. God, help us to respond to your Spirit. Help us to respond in worship, to rejoice in what is true, to fix our hearts and our minds on what is true and abandon the things that we rehearse in our hearts that lead us away from Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the first step in evicting anger is to acknowledge that your anger is wrong. Allow the Holy Spirit to impress upon you that anger is sin, even if it felt justified, even if you had a reason for it. You may have been wronged. You may have been victimized even. 
And so your anger may have felt totally justified, but wrong anger is sin, and it separates us from God. It separates our heart and our mind from God as we turn from what is true, and we now turn to a personal offense. It gives the devil a place in our heart to undermine our identity in Christ and undermine the work of grace. And so if you have wrong anger today, acknowledge your sin before God. And confess your sin before God. Receive the forgiveness of God for you today. And then, if you have wrong anger towards someone, deal with it. Deal with it. Maybe that means you got to get up and make a phone call right now. Maybe that means you need to make an appointment to go meet with someone and sit face to face with them and deal with your anger. And look, Listen, I've got this against you. Maybe some of you need to turn to your spouse in here today. Evict the falsehood that the devil is he's squatting upon your identity in Christ. And he's drawing us from what is true and right and good. And so we need to flee from the devil. We need to turn and give the devil an eviction notice this morning. And so as we worship, set your heart and set your mind on what is true. The communion elements are up here on the front of the stage. There's people on the right and the left that are willing and ready to, to pray for you. The carpets are up front to get on your knees before God. Church, let's respond to the grace of God and the forgiveness of God.